0: Okay then, I told her. Let's be clear. The goal here is not just to get you off the medication. The goal is to help you change emotionally so you can stay off it, come what may, for the rest of your life. For the rest of my life, I nodded my head.
1: Welcome to In Contact with the ACO, hosted by Dr. Chris Burritt. This presentation features the care of a patient by one of the ACO doctors who practices a different kind of psychiatry. There's a new case presented live each month at the college in Princeton, New Jersey. These are real patients, but their privacy is protected. Each episode comes from the recording of this presentation. If you're interested in attending, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. You can connect with us and learn more at a different kind of psychiatry.com. In this episode, Dr. Dale Rosen discusses the care of Sue, a woman who obtained relief from symptoms through medication but who wanted more than to not feel depressed. She came to Dr. Rosen because she wanted to feel satisfied and she wanted more out of life.
0: Sue, a 51-year-old woman, wanted to try one last time to discontinue her antidepressant medication. When she first presented for treatment, she matter-of-factly stated, I want to get off this Effexor. I've been on it for seven years, and I feel like an automated robot. Push the button, start, and repeat the same cycle. I'm not feeling sad, but I'm not feeling content or happy either. I have no sex drive, and I can't have an orgasm. Sue was a tall, muscular woman with an imposing bearing. She looked directly at me from behind her glasses with a subtly challenging air. Despite this, I could see an expression of sadness in her eyes. She was a psychiatric nurse, and I could see her as an effective nurse manager. She came across as tough and in control. With an evident smirk, she described her life to me in efficient, curt bullet points of information. She was a pro- there was a profoundly stoic expression to her mouth, with her lips pursed so tightly together that one could barely discern the vermilion border of her lips, the border between the lip and the facial. The sides of her mouth were pulled downward, giving her face an appearance of disapproval and disappointment. Feeling that commenting on how sad her eyes looked might be taken as criticism, or simply be too emotionally intense for her, I lowered my voice and asked when she had last cried. For a moment, the question seemed to surprise her. Then she told me, with little expression, that it had been years ago and that, in fact, she found herself now unable to cry. Sue said that she occasionally felt like crying, but it would not come out. She shrugged her shoulders as if to minimize what she was telling me, her lips pursing tighter. I asked her to tell me the last time she got angry. Oh, I don't get angry. I'm a New England wasp. We just don't get angry. She said this with her smirk, looking as if she were laughing it all off. (laughs) Rather blithely, she told me how she'd gotten married at age 22 and divorced at 28. In the year before the divorce, she had her first bout of depression. Finally, she wound up being hospitalized for two weeks. This was the first time she'd been placed on antidepressant medication. She presented this information to me in a dispassionate manner, as if she were talking about someone else. Despite her manner of talking, I had the impression that just telling me was a lot for her, and I decided not to press her for more details in that first session. I did tell her that in order to possibly discontinue her medication, it was essential to start dealing with some of the emotional reasons that had made medication necessary in the first place. I further said that I would not be taking her off medication right away, and that her therapy would require some time. A slight look of irritation came over her face at that. Okay, you're the doctor. I haven't been able to do it myself, so I guess I'll have to do it your way. I gently told her I had the impression that she didn't like me having any control in the session. Smiling at me as if she were laughing things off, she acknowledged that she always liked to be in control in all situations. Well, I said, you know, you might have to give up some control here. Yeah, I know, sure, she said with a jaunty smile. Then, clearly taking control of the situation, she looked at her watch, got up, and walked to the door with a bit of a swagger. I'll see you next week. But she didn't just leave. Rather, she paused slightly, at the door, her hand on the knob. This moment only lasted a few seconds. But at that moment, she looked right at me. I could see she knew exactly what she was doing, and that she knew, I knew, that she was taking control because she was so afraid. In those few seconds, though not stated out loud, it felt to me as if a question, her question, hung in the air. "'Look, Buster, this is really tough for me, "'so are you going to pin me down, "'or are you going to work with me?' "'Looking back at her with a slight reassuring smile "'and a small nod of my head, "'I told her that I'd see her next week. "'She nodded her head almost imperceptibly, "'opened the door and left. "'Sue began the second session "'by walking into the treatment room "'and saying, as if we were friends or colleagues, "'Hi, how are you?' "'She sat down, chatting about her job, her cats, her friends. After 10 minutes, I said, so how come you always have to be in control? She stopped talking for a moment, looked away, took a deep breath and exhaled. Then she told me that her ex-husband, Tony, used to wrestle with her, which always ended up with him holding her down, refusing to let her up. He kept her pinned down, Those were her words, and she hated that. As she remembered this interaction with her ex-husband, Sue stopped talking again, looking deep in thought. I waited. She finally looked at me as if suddenly aware that I was in the room with her and told me softly that she really didn't trust men. She looked away again. I nodded my head, accepting what she was telling me, And I thought to myself that despite what she had just said, she had actually trusted me a great deal by just saying it. I asked, then tell me, please, how do you feel about having a male therapist like me? Sue looked up, smiled that smirk, looked me in the eye and said, oh, I'm not worried about you. You come highly recommended, which felt very good to me. And then she said, Besides, I can protect myself. I could definitely beat the tar out of you if I had to. (laughs) She smiled, looking cocky, as if if she'd retaken the high ground. I smiled back at her, and I said, yes, I think you could. Sue looked me right in the eye, and she said, you bet I could. I noted to myself how, at 5 foot 8 inches, she came across as much larger and imposing. I thought how she was rather like a cat whose fur stands up when it's scared or threatened. That said, I felt she had courageously put her cards on the table, and this small interaction allowed her to more freely share details of her life with me from that point on. In the first two months of therapy, Sue talked more about her family and childhood. She spoke with overt contempt for her father, describing him as a wimp, Who she did not respect. On the other hand, Sue spoke admiringly and respectfully of her mother. She saw her as strong, unafraid, and not ruled by emotions, as her father was apt to be. Sometimes in session she talked about her mistrust of men, and we'd both nod, smiling and remembering, as she had stated before, I could definitely beat the tar out of you. That said, uh, excuse me, that she had said this to me and I hadn't challenged her had become a point of connection for us in the therapy. At the beginning of the third month of treatment, Sue began her session by telling me that she had a dream about Tony, her ex-husband. She was astonished by this because, as she said, for many years she had very few thoughts of him. After saying this, shaking her head, she grimaced in her stoic, corners-of-the-mouth-turned-down way. I asked her what she was feeling at the moment. Oh, nothing really, she said blandly, again pursing her lips. I can't do what she did but it sort of this. I asked her if she was aware that she had grimaced with her mouth after she talked about Tony. She looked at me questioningly, cocking her head to the right. I showed her with my mouth what the grimace looked like. Oh did I? I guess I did, she said. She appeared to shrug this off, raising her shoulders and then letting them fall. I watched as her eyes started to look sadder, perhaps even a little bit tearful. I asked if she knew her eyes looked sad. "'I don't feel sad,' she said grimacing again. "'You just did it again,' I told her. Suddenly for the first time she was aware of this expression she made with her mouth. Looking away from me, she grimaced and let it go, grimaced and let it go, over and over, trying it out with a new awareness. Then she turned back to me and said, interesting, shrugged, grimacing again. Following that session, to her surprise, she came in with more dreams about Tony. She said, in one of the dreams, I was missing him. Can you believe that? Again I pointed out how she was grimacing and told her how sad she looked. She shrugged my comments off, but without the usual energy. Seeing her masseter muscles flex on both sides of her jaw, I asked how her jaw felt. She moved it about a bit, and she agreed it was very tight. She said that in fact she ground her teeth at night and that the back of her neck was tight too. As quickly as she admitted these things to me, it appeared that such openness was a bit threatening to her. She regained control of matters by sitting up straight and saying, by the way, when are we gonna lower my meds? It's been four months. I asked her how long she'd been on this medication and she told me again that she'd been taking it for seven years. Well, I told her, we'll get there, but not yet. You've started. And stopped and started and stopped this medication. And you've done this for years with many other, many other antidepressants, correct? She agreed and remembered how she'd stop them and then depression would start again with sleeplessness, which for her was always the first sign. Looking sad, she said, It was awful. And I had to function. I was afraid of not functioning, so I'd go back on. Okay, then, I told her. Let's be clear. The goal here is not just to get you off the medication. The goal is to help you change emotionally so you can stay off it, come what may, for the rest of your life. For the rest of my life, I nodded my head. Sue thought this over, nodding her head solemnly. Then, as she'd said once before, at the beginning of her therapy, she smiled and said, but a little lighter. Okay, you're the doctor. We both laughed with the unsaid acknowledgement of how she grudgingly let me be in charge of her treatment. At the start of the fifth month of therapy, Sue again recounted a dream she had about Tony. As she did so, she told me how terribly hurt she was by the divorce. She immediately became aware of how her jaw and neck were tightening up just talking about it. I said, what are you feeling? Oh, maybe a little sad. Actually, I sort of feel like I'd like to sort of cry, well, maybe, but I can't. I can't. I asked her if I could palpate the back of her head and neck and perhaps press a bit on her tight jaw muscles as it looked like there was emotion held there. Well, I remember you talking about this muscular armor stuff, and it made sense, so yeah, go ahead. When Sue said this, she sounded cavalier, albeit a bit anxious. I got up slowly, walked over to where she was sitting, placing one hand on her forehead, and with the other, began to gently press on the muscles at the back of her head and upper neck. Ouch! And then she grimaced. I told her to go ahead and let out any sound. Again she said, ouch, a little more, as I gently worked on her tight muscles. I could see her eyes starting to well with tears. I slowly sat down and looked at her, pausing. I could see her eyes filling with tears, and I said, it's all right. She started to cry and then quickly stopped herself with that damn grimace. Then she sucked in through her nose, as if to pull any crying back. I want to cry, but I feel myself holding it back. I'm embarrassed. I told her it may be easier for you to give in to your crying more fully if you sit or you lie on the treatment couch over there, giving me a quick look that said, remember, I can beat you up. (laughs) She got up from her chair, walked over to the couch, and sat on it for a moment. She looked around, laid down on her stomach, and began slowly and then more fully to cry and then to sob. Sue sobbed for perhaps three minutes, and this was loud, deep sobbing, her shoulders heaving up and down as she gulped for air in between sobs. Then it stopped as quickly as it had begun. She lay on the couch breathing for some moments, and then sat up, wiping the tears from her eyes. I could see that her grimace, though still still present, was less evident, and her eyes looked softer and showed more sadness. Her respiration was less held. I asked what she felt. Oh, I guess relieved. I can't believe I cried. I told her, well, you needed to. I could see this was a startling new idea for Sue, that she actually might need to cry. With each subsequent session, Sue opened up further, telling me more about her life. Each session culminated with her laying down and crying, always giving her a feeling of relief. After several months of this, when her ability for this degree of emotional expression was established and integrated into her emotional functioning, we began lowering the medication, albeit very slowly. With each session, more memories and then crying came out. As this happened, she let me see still more of her by going further into her history. She began to describe her mother in a different light. My mother did not tolerate any type of emotion from us. I remember crying about something, and she said, if you want to cry, I'll give you something to cry about. I went to my room, played my records, and eventually I stopped crying. I'd learn to go to my room and cry by myself and never show my tears to anybody. After a few more months of sessions, which, with much crying and the medication being lowered even more, Sue told me, you know, my mother basically wanted us kids to be quiet, just do the right thing, not get in any trouble, and stay out of her way. She wasn't interested in us at all. Sue also began to describe her father differently than she had initially. As she was able to feel more sadness and to cry it out, she remembered him in another light. She said he was the sweetest man I ever knew. I often felt angry at him for not being able to stand up to my mother and help us out at times. But I also know he would have a price to pay if he ever did that. It was good that she began to see her father more clearly because about two years into her therapy, his health began to slowly deteriorate. She was able to be with him many times, taking care of him in various ways, telling him, even as he became increasingly demented and debilitated, that she loved him. After two and a half years of therapy, Sue stopped the antidepressant medication completely She told me that while she was not having any withdrawal symptoms, she was afraid of relapse, afraid of another hospitalization, afraid of her own inability to face life. She reminded me of major losses that were coming soon in her life. Her father's death was imminent. One of her best friends was slowly dying of cancer, and another was in the final stages of multiple sclerosis. She also said, I'd been on this stuff for so long, and now that I'm off it, I am really afraid. I told her I thought that as long as she could cry, as simple as that sounded, she'd make it through. She said, yeah, but I'm becoming a wimp with all this crying. I said, you mean you're not so tough? No, tears welling up in her eyes. I'm actually like a marshmallow inside. And she cried more fully than ever before. Over the next year, Sue weathered her father's death, her best friend's death, the death of a beloved cat, as well as losing a long-held job she loved. Despite her fears, she did not become depressed again. She did not go back on medication. She cried at home, and she cried heavily in her therapy sessions, always getting much-needed relief. As she softened, that is, becoming what she called a wimp, She realized that she avoided becoming genuinely close to others by always being the strong one and taking care of everyone. So she began to look at all her relationships differently. And she let me see still more of herself, recounting more of her childhood. She said there was no demonstrative emotions ever shown in our family. Nobody ever said they loved anybody. There were no hugs, no hand-holding, no anything. When we went to our grandmother's house, we were told very strictly to keep our hands behind our back and not to touch anything. We could look but not touch. Mustn't touch, I always whispered under my breath as I put my arms behind my back, clenching my hands together. She described saying this even today when she catches herself doing the same thing and bringing her arms out in front of her feels extremely alien. With evident sadness, she said, I have always felt I had to watch life afar like this. With her hands behind her back. I had to look at life, but I couldn't touch it. In medical organ therapy, the individual's held back emotions surface, and they're expressed in a lawful order, sort of like peeling the layers of an onion, although done very carefully. Throughout the five years of Sue's therapy, as various emotions surfaced, I remembered how she first told me, oh, I never get angry. Although I sometimes wondered, when will her anger come out? It was also clear to me at first, She needed to cry and cry and cry. A month or so later, she told me, I had another dream about Tony, and I was crying, but I was angry, too. This was a first. I waited. She got up and lay down on the couch, just breathing for a few minutes. I could feel tension building in the room. Sue got up matter-of-factly, walked over to a baseball bat in the corner of the room, picked it up, walked with deliberation back to the couch, heaved the bat over her head and began beating the couch, screaming with rage, You bastard! You bastard! She did this for a few minutes, although it seemed rather longer. When she finally tired, she stopped, bat in midair and turned and looked at me with an expression of amazement. Then she made a sort of Cheshire Cat teeth-bearing smile at me and raised the bat a little in my direction. (laughs) (coughs) And then she put it down, and she smiled, and I smiled, too, with relief. (laughs) I knew that Tony was Sue's first love and that he'd broken her heart. However, I did not know how that fit with the rest of her life. Now, after this explosion of rage in the session, I found out. This woman, who had at first been reluctant to tell me much about herself, now found her words pouring out. She referred back to her emotionally bleak childhood, which she then contrasted with how Tony was with her when they first met. He was demonstrative, he was warm, and he liked her. He put his arms around her, but not knowing what to do with such an expression, she froze. She remembered now, astonished, that at 15 years of age she had never been hugged before. Soon after, he told her that he loved her, and she could only reply awkwardly, No, you don't. She began to recall how wonderful Tony's family was. They were warm, accepting, demonstrative, the polar opposite of her own family, and what she had so much longed for. After a while, they even told me they loved me, she said. Sue felt that she had been adopted by a loving family. She gave her own parents funny Mother's Day and Father's Day cards, but she gave Tony's parents cards that expressed her great affection for them. She felt that Tony's parents filled in many of the gaps <clears throat> that her parents had, hadn't and could not. <clears throat> she told me with tears in her eyes, <clears throat> I felt alive, important, and special around them. I mattered. Tony's mother had told Sue she was the daughter she never had. So you see, Sue told me, I lost a lot more than Tony with the divorce. She paused, then went on. Tony and I were in marriage counseling for almost three years. He adamantly denied he was having an affair, but my gut feeling was telling me otherwise. I worked a lot of overtime during the evening hours and the night shift as well, and that was when he had his affairs. I felt betrayed and used, and I felt like a real sucker. I tried to make the marriage work, but all my efforts counted for nothing. I started to be unable to sleep, unable to eat, or concentrate at work. I didn't know if I could keep going, so I went into the hospital for two weeks, and I came out on antidepressants. After I got out of the hospital, Tony and I then agreed to give our marriage a try, as he put it. Six months later, I found a love note to another woman in his jeans when I was doing the wash, and I became even more depressed, and I was prescribed more antidepressants. So, like Sue, a lot of people get placed on antidepressants, like Prozac, Zoloft, Effexor, Cymbalta, to name a few. I don't want to suggest that these drugs are bad, or they shouldn't be used. However... I have met many patients who have been told that they must stay on these medications for the rest of their lives. Or, like Sue, have tried repeatedly to discontinue them. Unfortunately, because of the re-emergence of depression, symptoms of withdrawal, or both, and anxiety, they've not been able to stay off of them. But more important, I think, without effective therapy to address the emotions and resolve the conflicts covered up by the medication, symptoms will simply reappear as the dosage is lowered. Despite having multiple losses in the last two years of her therapy, Sue remained off of antidepressant medication. She noted by that point that she was now able to feel angry at her ex-husband, angry at her mother for being emotionally unavailable, and angry about being on antidepressants for 25 years of her life. Sue now feels and knows she is a sensitive, loving, and caring person and that she doesn't have to hide that part of herself anymore. Before she finished her treatment, she told me, I am actively participating in life now rather than just passively watching from afar with my hands tied behind my back.
1: What an amazing woman. We put these recordings together for the podcast to highlight this exciting and powerful therapy But when I listen to it this time, I'm struck by just how brave Sue was to face her feelings and stay with the therapy even when it wasn't easy. It was really moving to hear her story. And I think it was a testament to her, this unique treatment, and Dr. Rosen's skill and compassion. But I'm curious, what do you feel after listening to Sue's case? What do you think? Do you know anyone who's ever tried to get off psychiatric medication but had difficulty? Are you looking for more out of life? We're interested in your questions and comments. If you like our work, be sure to leave a favorable rating. Find more episodes at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. Be sure to check out our next episode, which features Dr. Phil Heller discussing the treatment of panic attack by addressing the patient's characteristic way of handling his feelings and getting to the underlying blocked emotion. Since 1968, the psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Orgonomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical orgone therapy, as practiced by the physicians at the ACO, offers a way forward, often without the use of medication. Thank you for listening to In Contact with the ACO. I looked at them and I said, John, what you're feeling
0: is part of you, not the result of something in the outside world affecting you. This really caught his attention. And at first, he had quite a scared look as a reaction to what I said. But then he began to joke with me, knowing that his main defense against feeling was acting like a good old boy this was coming out in his joking. So I looked at him and I told him with a serious but soft voice, this isn't the time for joking and humor, John.